Good morning. Welcome once again to Clemson Prez this morning. Uh, If we've not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Brian, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. Thanks thanks for joining us this morning, whether you're here in this room with us or you're online this morning. Thanks for coming out on a rainy Sunday morning to wrap up our study in the Lord's Prayer. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, we've prayed it, but we're going to read it again in just a moment. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13 is where you can find it. Uh, Like I said, this will be our last week in the Lord's Prayer. If you're curious, next week we'll start a series in the New Testament letter of Galatians. And that sermon series will dovetail with the new Sunday school class that you heard Matthew speak of and that's listed in your worship folder this morning. You can certainly still profit from the sermon series without coming to the Sunday school class, but you'll see that the topics and themes weave together, and so you'll have a chance to go a little bit deeper into some of the things that we'll learn in the sermon series. So I would encourage all of you, senior high and up, to join us for that. It's a great time to jump into a Sunday school class. If you're not in one, to bring all ages, we'll have something here for them at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. So since we're wrapping up the Lord's Prayer, That means that this week we're going to look at lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, so that we have the context of it. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, we are right now grateful that we get to look at your word together with each other this morning. We're grateful that you have inspired these words for us, that you have protected them for us, that even as Jesus spoke them 2,000 years back, you even had us in mind this morning as you thought of them and as they were written down by Matthew. So we ask, Lord, that since you've thought them up, since you've given them to us, that you would help us this morning. Teach us to pray. Teach us your heart. Teach us what Jesus is like. And we ask it in his name. Amen. As I came to prep this last sermon on the Lord's Prayer, I thought, perhaps naively, this should be the easiest one to prepare. A sermon on sin, temptation, and prayer for a pastor who's been at it for a while. Like, that's a fat pitch down the middle. I should be able just to turn that out pretty quickly. But it didn't take me long as I started to prepare to think, man, is there a concept in the Bible that is not touched on by these few words? We could go into, who is God? The fact that he is perfect and never leads us into temptation. We could go into all of the parts and pieces of who we are as people, who we are before Jesus, who we are after we come to faith, who we are physically, who we are spiritually. We could talk about Satan and temptation and what is that all about. We could talk about sanctification and how that really works. And I thought, man, I'm going to need a sermon series on just this last request, but I've got one sermon So I've had to pray and try to simplify. And so here is my prayer request for this sermon. It's actually just our outline as well. First, we're going to look at the great need to pray this. I hope that we all walk away with a sense of our need to pray this. If we don't sense a need to pray it, 
we won't pray it. And then secondly, we're going to look at the great hope to pray this, because if we don't have hope that this prayer will be effective, that it will help, we won't pray it. So the great need to pray it, the great hope to pray it, first, the need to pray this last part of the Lord's Prayer. And the need to pray is simple, isn't it? None of us, Christian or not, is who we want to be. None of us, Christian or not, are who we should be, who we could be, and certainly not even who we want to be. And if you meet someone who says, I am perfectly and completely the person I want to be, they're not paying attention because all of us fall short. All of us, the scripture says, of course, fall short of God's standard. And God's standard is nothing less than perfection. Or you could say it's nothing less than loving God and loving others perfectly. Are you there? I'm not. I'm a long way from there. Maybe that's not the standard you think of and try to live by every day. Sometimes we try to make lesser standards. Everybody has a standard of what people should do and be and live like. Maybe it's just that we should be tolerant of everybody. Maybe that's a standard somebody has. Are you perfectly tolerant? Maybe it's that you should do your duty. We've been thinking about that with the queen's death, and she talked about that all the time, right? Doing your duty. If that's your standard of a good life, do you do it all the time, perfectly? If your standard is just be as non-judgmental and nice as possible, are you that perfectly? All of us, no matter your standard, fall short. We're not who we want to be, could be, and should be. And if you think you still don't struggle with any great failing or sin, all you have to do is this week try really hard to be good. Try really, really hard this week to go above and beyond. And you'll find that this quote from C.S. Lewis is right. No man knows how evil he is until he's tried really hard to be good. All of us need this prayer. None of us are who we should be, could be, or want to be. And if we had time, we could go around the room and name, what is it for you that you struggle with? Where is it that you fall short that you realize, man, I need to grow in this. I need to move away from this behavior or this thought or these kinds of words that I use. Maybe it's something like working a lot of hours consistently over a long period of time to the point of excluding other biblical priorities in your life. Maybe it's lying. Maybe in big ways or small ways. Maybe you just find yourself shading the truth before you even know it's coming out of your mouth. Maybe it's boasting. Maybe it's being defensive. Maybe it's some form of addiction or worry or sexual sin. What is it for you that if you had to identify something, and I encourage you to do it, that you would say, that's where I struggle. That's where I'm disappointed. That's where I sense a need to grow. And maybe what you struggle with to you seems small. Maybe it seems inconsequential. I mean, at least you might think, I don't struggle with this big sin that so-and-so struggles with. But big disasters come from small sins. Big sins, if you want to use that term, come from being confident or being okay with small sins. Maybe it's a small thing, but is it really? Because all sin divides you from others. It harms your relationship. Even if you think, I'm going to do this sin in order to protect my relationships, it doesn't work that way. Your sin also divides you, in a sense, from yourself because every sin you have to 
by a lie. You have to deceive yourself. And the more you deceive yourself, the further you are from the truth. All your sins, all my sins, harm our relationship with others, with ourselves. And then, of course, it divides and isolates us from God as well. There is no such thing, therefore, as a small sin. And why is it so hard? What is this need behind the prayer for this prayer request this morning? Why is it so hard? Well, two reasons, one external and one internal. First, externally, we have an enemy. Lead us not into temptation. The Scripture says God never tempts, but there is one who's called a tempter, right? Satan, throughout the Scripture, comes and he tempts Eve. He tempts Job. He tempts Jesus, like I say, sometimes he's just called the tempter. That's his name. Paul's worried that Satan will come and tempt the churches he has started and planted. We have an enemy who seeks to tempt us to sin, to do those things which divide us from each other, from ourselves, and from God. And then we have to say, right, it's a little strange in our day and age to talk about Satan. It seems a little outmoded, a little archaic. We live in a day and age that absolutizes natural and material explanations. If we can't study it scientifically, it must not be real. Do we need to even talk about this concept of Satan? And I would say yes, it still matters even today in this day and age. Because if we're honest, isn't it tough to look at the evil we see in the world and say it all has scientific and material sources? Is it tough to look at the evil in the world and say that can all be boiled down to scientific and material things? There's these quotes I came across from a professor at Columbia University named Andrew Del Banco. He wrote this book in 1996, so it's not new. He's a self-described secular liberal. The book's called The Death of Satan. And here's what he says. He says, we've jettisoned the idea of cosmic or supernatural evil. We don't believe in that, speaking as a society today. He says, in fact, we don't even like to use the word evil. The reason we don't like it, it is because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But he says, and again, this is 1996, as the 20th century has gone on, it's gotten harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustments. And he goes on, he says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. Has anything gotten better in the last 25 years since he wrote that? Have we gained new intellectual resources in the realm of science alone to understand the evil that we see around us? And the answer, of course, is no. Our culture cannot explain the depth and unyieldingness of evil, but I think the Scripture can help us understand the depth and unyieldingness of evil because, according to the Scripture, each one of us is responsible for our own evil actions, but... The spiritual forces of evil, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians, can do two things. They can aggravate and they can accentuate our own evil hearts. Just as 
Biological, sociological, psychological, chemical factors can aggravate, so can spiritual factors, but they're not ultimately to blame. John White, a Christian counselor, has helped me understand this better about how would Satan's temptation really work? How does this spiritual force, this spiritual personality of evil actually tempt us? He says, when you lift a lid on a piano, if I were to go over there, lift that little lid a little higher and sing a note, what would happen? One of the strings would vibrate according with that note. And I think that's how Satan plays us. He doesn't take us over and make us a robot. He doesn't tempt us to do something completely out of the blue for us, but he knows how to play you. He knows what you struggle with. He knows what you love. He knows what you fear. And he plays that note that our hearts are already singing. He plays that note our hearts are already singing. So if we're overworking, like we said, he knows why. He knows maybe you're dying for the approval of others, and it's going to keep you chained to that laptop for hours more to gain the approval. Or if it's lying, he knows maybe it's to protect your reputation, and you'll be surprised at what you won't do to protect your reputation. Whatever it is, whether it's addiction, gossip, coveting, defensiveness, He knows how to play us. He knows what we really want. Where would we find our worth and our comfort? How we long for power. That's why it's so hard to say no. That's why we need to pray this, because we have an enemy, an external reason. But then we also have an internal reason that gives rise to the need to pray this prayer. An internal reason that can sound just as strange to the modern world as to talk about Satan. But the internal reason is you and I are born spiritually dead. As soon as we come into this world alive physically, we come in dead spiritually. And what does that even mean, you might ask? What does it mean to be born spiritually dead? Well, it means we can't hide behind Satan and blame him for all of our mistakes and our sin. The problem is not him ultimately. The problem is us. The scripture says that we were born dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're by nature children of wrath, again, in the book of Ephesians. Think about it. Sometimes children learn how to be selfish, how to sin, how to lie, how to hit, how to cheat by having an example. But sometimes don't they just know how to do that without ever having had a bad example? Aren't we born knowing how to lie? And sometimes aren't we born even wanting to lie? That's what it means to be born spiritually dead. Not that we can't, or excuse me, not that we are as bad as we could be. By God's grace, he restrains and helps and protects. But at the same time, we are born with a guilty nature, a corrupt nature that wants to sin. A spiritual stillbirth, which is not an image I use lightly at all. And I think that helps explain the nature of the world around us. Why is evil so intractable? Why does nothing work to make us good? Why does prosperity not work to make us good? Why does education not work to make us good? Why does all the research and perfect government, there's no such thing, but why does that ultimately not even matter? Because you and I are born spiritually dead, and that helps us explain this world we're in. It's not so much about us being as bad as we are, but it is about what would we do? What could we do if we were left to ourselves? So you see, we have a powerful enemy, and internally we're born dead. So when it comes time to pray, deliver us from temptation, we have a great need to pray this. 
But in light of that kind of need, in light of those kind of external and internal forces, do we even bother? Should we even bother to pray? Is there any, any hope at all? I heard someone say recently, it was Reed, actually, our RUF campus pastor, that you can't really be a PCA pastor and not use an illustration from Lord of the Rings. So at the risk of being cliche, I'm going to give you one right now. If you've read the book or seen the movie, The Return of the King, you know the scene where the capital city of Gondor, the good guys, the city of men, has been surrounded. And the men have been weakened for generations. They're not near as strong as they used to be. And the forces of Sauron, the bad guys, have been growing stronger and stronger and preparing for war. And they've now surrounded the city. Their captain is at the gate. The sun has been blocked out. The city is on fire. And it seems like there is no hope. None. And if you've seen the movie, this is the terrible scene where their ruler sits in the tower eating tomatoes. It's that terrible, awful. I don't even understand why they did that in that scene. But nonetheless, his faithful men come and say, we can still fight. What do you want us to do? What are your orders? And he says, why? Better to burn sooner than late, for burn we must. I will go now to my pyre. We will burn like heathen kings. We have failed. Go back and burn. And he goes to his death, and he misses the victory. He thinks it's all over. And so often when we face temptation, that area where we struggle, we say, ah, I can't win. I'm born spiritually dead. Why even bother to fight? Well, there is great, great hope to pray this. There's more hope to pray this than there is need to pray it, all because of what God has done. What has he done? Well, first, he has sent someone to be tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So he can sympathize with us. He sent Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to live a perfect life, to love God and love others perfectly, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of betrayal, even in the face of hunger and suffering and exhaustion. He lived and loved perfectly. Hebrews chapter 2 says, He himself has suffered when tempted, so he's able to help. Those who are being tempted, that's me, that's you, that's us. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there's great hope to pray it because there is one who has defeated sin. There is one who's been tempted in every way, who knows what it's like, who stands ready to help, who stands ready to care. Second, we have hope to pray it because that same man, by his perfect life and his death and his resurrection, has freed us from the penalty of sin. You see, God is holy and perfect, according to the Bible. And every time we sin, we incur debt, debt that must be paid off for there to be justice. And we keep piling it up. But Colossians chapter 2 says that Jesus, having forgiven all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The one who was tempted but perfect died in our place, taking the punishment. So you and I, when we sin, no longer have a penalty for that sin. 
And when we sin in the future, if you are in Christ, if you've trusted him for your salvation, there won't be a penalty for those sins either. And you say, whoa, that's going to make me want to sin. If you say, I can get away with it because there's no penalty, but I would say, no, the Bible is right when it says, if you know that, it takes away the attraction and beauty of sin, to know that Jesus stood nailed to the cross for that sin you're tempted by right there, and you've been forgiven of it. That's why William Romaine, one of the leaders of an 18th century revival in England, he said, no sin can be crucified either in heart or life unless it first be pardoned in conscience. If it not be mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. You have to know the freedom you have from guilt if you're going to say no to temptation. And you have every reason in Jesus to know that you are forgiven, not by what you do, but by the faith that he gives alone, the gift of salvation. You've been freed from the penalty of the sin that you've given into in the past that you're struggling with today as well. So we have hope to pray it because Jesus Christ was tempted, because we've been freed from the penalty, and because, and this is so important, we've been freed from the power of sin as well. And this is where some of us have grown up hearing that we're born sinners. And even though we've come to faith in Jesus, we think that's still the end of the sentence. I'm a born sinner, period. End of story. Is it though? Yes, I've been freed from the penalty of sin, but I'm still a born sinner. I'm helpless against sin to say no to it. But that's not what the Bible says. It says not only are we freed from the penalty, but we're freed from the power of sin as well. Not perfectly in this life, but the Bible says you were united to Jesus in his death. And Romans 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, that's how we struggle with sin, its power over us, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you also must consider yourselves, Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You see, as Christians, we were born sinners, but then there's this comma, and the rest of the sentence is so much better, but now I am dead to sin and alive to God, and yes, I still have the old man, the flesh, with me and influencing me, but by God's grace, not by my own effort, by trusting Jesus, I can not perfectly, but really obey I'm not helpless before sin, not by my own effort, but by what God has done by uniting me with Jesus and giving me new life. Now, God, in his timing, has had our women's Bible study looking at some of these same themes as we're looking at in this sermon because they're going through the book of Hebrews. And I just read you two verses from Hebrews about temptation. So my wife comes home this week and she says, Maggie Erickson was teaching and she had the best story to illustrate this. And I thought, man, I wish I had that story because now I can't share it on Sunday morning. And then I thought, why can't I? Hey, Maggie, can I use your story? And she said, yes. So Maggie gave us this great story. If you're in women's Bible study this week and already heard it, good for you. You get to hear it again. But the story is this. A while back on, uh, on uh, I guess it was YouTube or Twitter or whatever one it was, there was a challenge, the Kids Candy Challenge. And the idea was to film your toddler put before them a bowl of candy and watch what happens. Tell them they can't eat it yet. They have to wait. 
And so there's the video that Maggie talks about, and in this video, this sweet little girl, maybe three years old, big pigtails, big eyes, sitting down, and Daddy puts in front of her a bowl of M&Ms, all the colors, hundreds of them, big bowl, and she's excited. And Dad says, hey, do you want some? Do you want Mommy to have some? Do you want me to have some? Yes, yes, yes. He says, great, just wait till I get back. Don't eat any. And then he walks away and leaves the camera on the little girl. And she's there looking at the bowl of M&Ms. And the seconds start to tick by. And she counts the seconds. One, two. And she goes on until she really can't count that high anymore. And then she, and then she touches the candy. But she's not eating it. And then she says, Dad, when are you coming back? And the minutes tick by. This little girl had amazing self-control. She waited three, four, five, maybe six minutes before Dad came back. And she finally got a little piece of candy. But in that, while she's waiting, if you listen really closely, you can hear her whisper, help me. <laughs> and Maggie said, and she's right, that's us before temptation. That's this prayer request. We're there faced with this temptation, and we whisper, help me. We cry out with a loud voice, help me. And there's hope in crying out, Help me because Jesus Christ, we pray, deliver us from evil. He is the deliverer. In the Old Testament, what did he do? He delivered his people from slavery. In the New Testament, he delivers his people from slavery. But not just physical. One day all that will end as well. But spiritual slavery. The spiritual slavery to do that which we don't want to do. Deliver us over and over again in the Bible. He's called the deliverer. Deliver us from evil. We have a Savior who cares that even when you think, I've given in to this temptation so many times, it's so gross, he's so tired of me, he'll never like me, it's not true. He stands ready to forgive over and over and over with a smile on his face. And he stands ready to help you say no to sin. He even prays for us. Even when you are too tired to pray, God, deliver me from temptation, he's praying. He doesn't give up on us. He does not stop. And so when you pray this in a really practical way, I encourage you, find a specific sin that you're struggling with, and then go towards the root, towards that place where Satan sings the note your heart is already singing. Like we said, is it reputation that leads you into all kinds of sins, a protection of your reputation? Maybe it's, like we said, the need and longing for someone's approval, and you'll be surprised what you're willing to do to get it. Maybe you're struggling, like we said, with an addiction, which is maybe just covering up some sort of shame in your life or background that you need to go to Jesus for. You need to go to Him and say, I relish and rejoice in your approval of me, Jesus, and so I don't have to worry about my reputation with others. I don't have to worry about their approval. I don't have to worry about shame and all these ways that I go and sin against you to cover up. Identify a particular thing and the root. Put a date beside it. Keep a list. Pray against not just the surface sin, but the reasons. Apply the gospel to it. Pray through all the truth that God gives you that fights against that root sin. I've identified all kinds of things when I look back at my list over the years. All kinds of things with dates beside them. When I started to pray about my fear or my worry or my coveting or my lack of forgiveness or on and on. I would not be so worried about you if you weren't praying for a particular sin as if you're not praying for a particular sin. 
You might think, I don't want to be the kind of person that has to like, ugh, talk about their failures, pray about their sins. No, we all need to do it in specific ways. One of my favorite quotes is from John Owen. He said, be killing sin or it will kill you. It's absolutely right. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, there's two things I don't want you to walk away with this morning. One, there is hope, yes. Two, by God's grace, because of the power he's given you over sin, you can make progress, but that does not mean that you'll always make steady and significant progress all the time. Even as you're crying out, Lord, help me, sometimes God in his wisdom allows us to be tempted even further so that we'll feel our need of him in profound ways. You might go with a sin struggle to the grave, always keeping you close and relying on Jesus. Or you might find freedom from it. That's up to him in his timing. But don't think that if you're praying this, that you're going to be set free immediately or always making that steady and significant improvement. The other thing I don't want you to walk away with is that fighting temptation solves all your problems or someone else's problems because we still will live in a fallen world. There's lots of reasons that we suffer and struggle. Some of them are because of how we give in to sin and don't fight temptation, but others are because we live in a world with physical illness or mental illness or because we're sinned against. And so when you see a fellow struggler or fellow sufferer, don't be too quick to say, if you would just fight temptation, your life would be perfect. Don't say that to people. Come alongside them. Share your own suffering and your own struggle and encourage them where they do need to fight temptation. Point them to Jesus, but recognize that we're whole people with lots of things going on. So as we wrap up, not just this sermon, but this whole series, I want to zoom back out for a minute and conclude by looking one more time at these really important pronouns in the Lord's Prayer, our and us. When you read through the Lord's Prayer, you don't see any personal pronouns. You don't see any me's or my's. You see us and our. And now it's entirely appropriate to pray through the Lord's Prayer for your own life, your own struggles, your own requests. But this is not so much just an individual prayer as it is a community prayer. That's why these pronouns are plural. And I think that's why we keep coming back to this prayer shows us Jesus' heart. And it shows us what kind of church even that we can pray for each other. These are prayer requests not just for yourself, but for Clemson Prez as we go forward together as a congregation. You can pray for our church that we would be people, all of us together, who know the freedom and joy of having a Father in heaven. That we would be the kind of church where people who struggle with feeling like they're spiritual orphans find freedom in knowing that they're spiritual children of the Most High God, that they can be free of guilt and shame and insecurity because they have a Father in heaven, that we would be the kind of church that sees each other less through our differences and more through our common Father, our Father in heaven. We can pray that God would continue to make Clemson Prez a church that hallows God's name. And that means that we take all of God seriously and all of his words seriously. That we would be the kind of church that's known for taking God's holiness and justice seriously, but also his love and forgiveness and mercy seriously as well. 
that we take his challenges seriously and we take his comfort seriously, that we take his word seriously. You can pray that Clemson Prez would be used to bring God's kingdom, both in bringing people into a saving relationship with Jesus and helping them find freedom from what they struggle with, that his will would be done in their life, and that we could train and equip people to go out into all their walks of life in this area of the world, all their callings and careers and activities, and see God's rule and reign come to broken places. You can pray that we would be a church crying out to God for his daily bread, that we say God has given this church a mission, just as he's given every church a mission, to go and make disciples, and we need resources to do it, and we have to trust God for that, financial resources, We need volunteers and leaders to do it. God, would you give Clemson Prez what it needs in order to go forward in what you've called her to be, that we would therefore be generous with our time and our money and our talents as God provides. You can pray that Clemson Prez would be a church known for its forgiveness, that we relish and rejoice and enjoy God's forgiveness of us to the point where we're beginning to learn how to forgive one another, that we're marked by reconciled relationships. We'll never be a church, no church will be, free from conflict and free from hurt. The closer we get to one another, the more hurt we can give one another. But we can't ever hurt each other past the resources that God gives us to have reconciled, forgiving relationships with one another. And then last, you can pray that Clemson Perez would be a church where people find freedom from what they struggle with, from their temptations that they would be set free from all their idols and the pain and suffering that comes with them, that they could find hope and growth. I said a few weeks back that as I've gotten to know this church, I've heard a lot of its stories from the past, and they're great stories of how God has worked. And all my favorites are the ones that start and end like this. We prayed and God worked. We have stories like that in our history, and I know we're going to have more in the future. May God make us the church who prays the Lord's prayer, that it becomes a community prayer and that it shapes the future of this church. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled to be able to pray that you would give us access with boldness and confidence right into your throne room to address you as our Father in heaven. Lord, as we think about all these places that we struggle with temptation, we thank you that you have mercy on us. We thank you that you're not tired of us, that you're not exasperated with us. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, I pray that we would not hide our temptations from you, but that we would bring them into the light with you, with others. Lord, that we might know the freedom that comes from having sin forgiven and sin mortified and killed in our life. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.